I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It began at the end of last year as Russian troops were on the move. New satellite images tonight show Russian forces at the ready near the Ukrainian border. U.S. intelligence warned Russia's Vladimir Putin may be planning an attack on the U.S. ally. Ukraine's defense minister says Russia could be planning to invade his country as soon as next month. It sparked international outrage. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. Let there be no doubt at all that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. A Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be a military disaster. With high-level talks stalling, President Putin is already playing the blame game. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into some armed conflict. And then yesterday, America weighed in. We have some breaking news for you. In the last few minutes, a US official has said that President Biden is sending troops to Poland, Germany and Romania. With tensions rising, what does Putin want from Ukraine? Can a Russian advance be halted? Or are we now on the brink of war in Europe? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, will Putin invade Ukraine? My name is Catherine Felt, and I'm the diplomatic correspondent for The Times. Catherine, over the last few weeks, all of the headlines have been screaming about a potential war in Ukraine. And for a lot of people, it will feel like it's come out of nowhere. Would you be able to just take us back a step and explain how did we get here? Well, at the end of last year, say November, intelligence agencies started to detect an unusual military buildup in Russia, close to the Ukraine border. Ukraine gets back to the spotlight. While the EU has been focused on Belarus, Russia is once again accused of a military build-up on the Ukrainian border. 
buildup was sort of on three sides, including in Crimea, the peninsula that was once attached to Ukraine, but that was annexed by Russia in an invasion of Ukraine that it carried out in 2014. The increased military presence has fueled fears, particularly from the US, that Russia could be planning an incursion into Ukraine. As the alarm grew over the military build-up, Russia came forward and said that it had some demands, that it wasn't intending to invade Ukraine, as the military posture suggested, but that it had some concerns about the security infrastructure in Europe, and it had some demands it wanted to make of the United States and of NATO. In December, it presented those demands, and they shocked NATO. Vladimir Putin has insisted that the West must give Russia guarantees that NATO won't expand eastwards or admit Ukraine as a member. You must give us guarantees. You must do it. Immediately. Now. We won't be palmed off with decades of idle chatter about the need of security for all while the other side carries out its own plans. The demands were so maximalist and so kind of outrageous and beyond what NATO could possibly agree to. The one that concerned Ukraine was that NATO must commit to banning Ukraine from ever joining the alliance. But additionally, Moscow was demanding that NATO withdraw a presence from the Eastern European countries that joined the alliance after 1997. The alliance's infrastructure continues to move. It has to be stopped. We need to return to the positions that Russia and NATO held in 1997, when the founding act on our relations was signed. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union and when they became independent states again. And furthermore, that it commits to never expanding the NATO membership beyond its current number. So that would also include countries like Sweden and Finland, who are not members of NATO, but who have flirted with the idea and have partnerships with NATO. Just on a fundamental level, this is Russia trying to dictate what a security alliance should be doing, who, who should be a member. Absolutely. And that's a key problem for NATO, because really it's sort of founding constitution is founded on the idea that anyone who wants to join NATO can do so as long as they meet the entry requirements, which are to do with not just military issues, but also issues of transparency, corruption, democracy, those kind of things. And so it really, it was, I mean, it was described in Washington as a non-starter because the raison d'etre of the alliance, it ceases to exist if you do that. But the other issue is that would be NATO acquiescing to a demand by the Kremlin that they essentially be given a veto over those countries' future. It's not for NATO to decide behind Ukraine's back that Moscow be the arbiter of where its future lies and who it allies with. And Catherine, this isn't the first time that Russia has invaded Ukraine in recent times. We turn tonight to the tension rising around the world as Russian President Vladimir Putin casts his shadow across the boundary of Europe and Russia. That's right. In 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine. What America is officially calling a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russian troops spreading out throughout the uh, strategic Crimean Peninsula. 
So when we talk about an invasion of, of Ukraine now, it's actually a re-invasion of Ukraine. President Obama speaking with Russian President Vladimir Putin, apparently pulling no punches, although it is unclear what the White House can really do about all of this. So Russia invaded Ukraine really blindsided NATO and the West in doing so, very swiftly annexed the Crimean Peninsula, which is a part of Ukraine that has a very, very strong history with Russia. But then Russia started to send its troops in unmarked uniforms into eastern Ukraine, into the mm. Donbass region. They were wearing unmarked green uniforms. And it took time for Moscow to actually confirm that these were their soldiers. So when people wonder about the mood in Ukraine as they await a Russian invasion and a, a war with Russia, I think most Ukrainians would want to remind us that they've been at war with Russia all this time. And why do you think it's ratcheted up again now? I mean, this is 20 years since Putin first became Russian president. Why would he want to act now? I mean, there's lots of reasons why he might want to. And again, we are sort of in the realms of criminology a bit here. <laughs> we, we certainly know that he feels extremely threatened, as I say, by this idea of a sort of Western and NATO encroachment on his border, that he's very wedded to this idea of the historic Russia, and that he has been seeking to shore up domestic support with this idea of Russia as a great sort of imperial power. Putin is actually not wildly popular at home right now, and he's got quite outspoken domestic opponents in the form of Alexei Navalny, for example, although he's obviously mitigated the risk to him from Navalny by putting him in jail. You know, it, it's, it's much easier for him to project a common enemy of the Russian people and project this notion that Russia is somehow under assault from the West. You mentioned um, Putin's worldview, effectively, and some of the reasons why he still feels Ukraine is unfinished business. For him, is Ukraine just sort of a part of what should still be modern Russia? I think Ukraine is slightly different to some of the other states, satellite states of what was the former Soviet Union. Its history is so tied up with that of Russia. So many important events in Russian history happened in Ukraine. It is, in his mind, quite an integral part of what ought to still be Russia. But when you talk about him seeing Ukraine as unfinished business, I think that's really important because essentially his Ukraine policy has failed. He hasn't got a sympathetic government in power in Kiev and he has this frozen conflict in the Donbass, which is, you know, so what? It's not really gone anywhere. I think that actually far more than fearing Ukraine joining NATO, Putin fears Ukraine having a democracy and a Western-focused government because that's such a dramatic rebuke to the Russian system. And, you know, if Ukraine has a fully developed, mature, functioning democracy, which I, I wouldn't say it's there yet, but if it really moves towards a fully developed democracy, then Russians might ask themselves, well, why can't we have that? I think that that really is much more important to understanding this crisis. And that's why it actually becomes quite a difficult issue for NATO to tackle as a military alliance. That's why you're seeing so much diplomacy that's carried out by people like Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, and not so much through the NATO architecture. It's kind of gone beyond that now. 
I mean, that's so important. It's probably worth us sort of pivoting towards the NATO perspective on all of this. I mean, just take us back to how NATO started in sort of the post-Cold War era. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Well, it was set up during the Cold War and it was set up as an alliance, a defensive alliance to secure Western Europe against the Russian threat. The free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedoms. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world. There was an equivalent of NATO led by Moscow, which was the Warsaw Pact. So even those Eastern European states that weren't actually part of the Soviet Union were within the Warsaw Pact. So this was when East and West faced off against each other, you know, along the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall. And then when the Berlin Wall came down and the Iron Curtain came down, some of those states began to see a more fully European future for themselves. And they've joined the European Union and they've joined NATO. That has taken them out of Moscow's orbit. And that, as Putin has described it, is a disaster for him. Go on till the present day and more and more of those countries have come into the orbit of the West and away from Russia. He suddenly feels much more isolated. The 2014 invasion of Ukraine and the current military builds up, such as Russia's expansion into the Middle East with its support for uh, President Assad in the Syrian civil war. And these are all attempts to push Russia as an influential power in the world when it's not feeling like one, because the Russian economy, for example, is extremely small. It's about the size of Spain's which obviously, you know, Spain is a fraction of the size of Russia. So it's vast size and its geopolitical reach, just in terms of the geography, belie the stagnation of its economy and, and its small size in the world. And for NATO, you know, it sort of offered membership to a number of ex-Soviet states. In terms of Ukraine, Ukraine isn't actually a member, but it does have some obligations towards Ukraine, doesn't it? I mean, going back to 1994 and the moment Ukraine lost its nuclear weapons. Ukraine chose to give up nuclear weapons. Your decision has made the Ukrainian people, the American people and the entire world much safer and more secure. So Ukraine had, when we call them, it's interesting we refer to them as Ukraine's nuclear weapons, but of course they were the nuclear weapons of the Soviet state. They just happened geographically to be in Ukraine, and that's where they were when the Soviet Union broke up. That put the new Ukrainian state in a tricky position about what it would do with, with these weapons. And it agreed to give them up under a guarantee that it would never be threatened by a nuclear power and that it would it would enjoy the protection, essentially, of the US nuclear umbrella. Ukraine would dearly love to join NATO tomorrow, but that's not going to happen. The promise that was given to Ukraine and Georgia that they could one day join NATO, given by the Bush administration in 2008 after Russia invaded Georgia. Today I reiterate America's commitment to the NATO aspirations of Ukraine, Georgia, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Montenegro. 
The lasting strength of the NATO alliance is a testament to the enduring power of freedom. And the expansion of this alliance will lead the way to a safer and more hopeful world. He made that a promise of future membership to those states that is really rather regretted by NATO today. But there is no way to repudiate the promise without giving in to Moscow or indeed undermining the entire founding concept of NATO. It's a bit like, I think a useful comparison for listeners would probably be the idea of Turkey joining the EU, which everyone acknowledges quietly is something that's never going to happen. So Ukraine is on a waiting list uh, to NATO that is analogous to the waiting position posture that Turkey has for joining the EU. It's nowhere near meeting the kind of requirements required of a NATO ally. And I suppose for NATO, it's difficult because, you know, under Article 5, if any one of your members is invaded, you all have to go to war and both Georgia and Ukraine do tend to get invaded quite often. This is really the key reason. Article 5 is absolutely critical to NATO's dread of actually having Ukraine and Georgia as members because it, it would it would trigger this obligation of all NATO countries to go to war on their behalf. Coming up, the veteran war correspondent Anthony Lloyd tells us what it's been like on the front line in Ukraine. Hello, I'm Jane Mulcairns, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I've been here for, I think this is the end of my third week now in Ukraine. That's Anthony Lloyd, foreign correspondent for The Times. When I called him up at the end of last week, he was in Kiev, but he'd just returned from the trenches. The front line in eastern Ukraine gives very little sign of impending crisis. These front lines have by and large been frozen in place since 2015, and actually in the middle of winter they are also literally frozen in place. It's been a low-intensity conflict really since 2015, though overall like 14,000 people have, have lost their lives. Now, as Russia gathers its forces to the north, east and south, it's unclear how much the east will become a central battleground or whether the Russians may strike elsewhere. But one thing's for sure, you don't see much sign of any preparation for war at any level in this country. These soldiers are very familiar with kind of on-off violence and all the rest of it. I think many of them feel quite out of control of their overall destiny as to what happens next. So they don't really display the anxiety that a lot of people outside Ukraine display. Normally, just before a war starts, you can feel this in the energy of a place and you can see a lot of preparations too. You can see sandbags going up, people taping up windows so glass doesn't fly everywhere. You see ammunition convoys moving up, troops moving up. You don't see any of that in eastern Ukraine or in any other city I've been to. And I've been in quite a few over the last three weeks. To some extent, the government have urged, probably rightly, people not to panic. It's uh, the government here say it's still very unclear exactly what Russia will do, whether they mean to extract or compel political concessions rather than fight, or indeed what the timescale for a Russian attack might be if it does happen. But when you compare that to not just the media scene, but the diplomatic scene outside of Ukraine, it is in stark contrast. Reading about it you know, in papers outside, it seems as if World War III is about to start. That is not the view from Ukraine. Their attitude is, we have been in war with Russia or pro-Russian separatists of one type or another since 2014. At times, that's been a very hot war. At times, it's been more of a low-intensity conflict. We are familiar as well with Russian troop buildups along our borders, escalations and de-escalations. We cannot devote anxious energy to a situation which has not yet reached peak crisis. That's sort of their attitude. And we spoke a few days ago when you were in Kiev, and it sounded like there was no preparation there for an imminent war. Now that you're back, what's your sense? Have things moved? Is it looking more or less likely? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't know. I go to bed at night thinking there will be a war and wake up in the morning thinking there won't be a war. I think a number of things have changed. First of all, there is a pretty open schism between the perception and, and perspective of Kiev and President Zelensky and the perspective and perception of Britain and America. America says an imminent invasion is a real possibility. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is insisting it isn't. We do understand what's happening, and we're talking about this. We're talking about this with our people. But we have been in this situation for eight years, so we shouldn't be only looking up. We're also looking on the ground. We may lose the current economy of our country. People come first. I mean, it's fairly out there now that there is a disagreement between the two. Zelensky's had a press conference and, and backed up by members of his administration saying the situation is serious, but they don't believe there's going to imminently going to be an invasion, nor is there cause to panic. They've stressed that they're the ones on the ground and that their view is overarching. The Russians have certainly picked up on the comments by the Zelensky administration and have fired them back at America, saying that America was endangering the region rather with its uh, hysterical response. The onus here is is on Russia answering questions. Why has it amassed over 100,000 armed personnel around Ukraine's borders? It says it's for exercises. It's clearly more than that. It's not surprising that people are extremely concerned as to what happens next. But the discord between the Ukrainian administration and particularly the Americans and the British is pretty open now. That's what's changed the most in the last few days. Something else that's changed in the last few days is that a picture you took while you're out in Kiev of a woman in her kitchen now seems to have gone viral. Tell us about that. Tell us about the picture. The lady was a territorial defence volunteer called Mariana. She was about my age, early 50s. And I'd seen her training in her uniform and all the rest of it. And she looked pretty cool and like she knew what she was doing. So I said, can I see you at home where there's more freedom to talk? So I saw her in her apartment, which was a really interesting apartment on the left bank in Kiev. And there she was. She was just at home. And she brought out this you know, huge hunting rifle. I've forgotten it was called Zabuya or something, which had been upgraded and kind of weaponized as, as a sniper's rifle. She'd done a sniper's course and all the rest of it. And this, this photograph, she was out of uniform. She's wearing a red fleece. It was by a kitchen, nice light gray day, light coming in, bouncing off the snow with a kind of cooker and fridge and stuff there. It was, it was going to be a good shot. You could just tell it was a good shot. It got picked up by everybody and is now at the center of all these allegations, both coming from Moscow and allies in Moscow. This was somehow fake news. It was a set-up shot that I'd supplied her with a rifle. And you could they could tell that I must have supplied her with a rifle because the rifle was so expensive, and yet her kitchen was so in need of upgrade and all the rest of it. <laughs> How many expensive saying. rifles do you carry around? <laughs> I definitely couldn't clear an expensive rifle on time's expenses. But yeah, it is it is it is a sign of just, you know, how kind of febrile it kind of the information space is. This photograph suggested that, you know, Ukrainian citizens were arming themselves in preparation to fight the Russians. Mariana Jaglo bought her own hunting rifle, but she's not planning to shoot deer. If it comes to it, we'll fight for Kiev, she said. Now, in her case, that was what was happening. It was a good photograph. And therefore, the counter-allegation, the counter-attack comes in pretty quickly from Moscow. And with stuff like that, is is there any point in engaging or do you just have to stand back? There's no point in engaging at all. Never feed a troll. 
although there's a lot of, sort of Russian propaganda sleuthing about, most of it in Ukraine actually, and disinformation, there isn't much out there that's been presented to the Russian people, which suggests that Putin has not made a decision to prime them for an upcoming war. The perception of how close we are to conflict is really different in all the countries that are involved. So the French are just interpreting what they see very differently. They don't see an imminent invasion and they aren't as noisy about it. The Americans have sort of gone back and forwards, although they are quite they are quite shrill. I don't think anyone is as shrill about this as Britain. And I think that that is possibly a lot, again, to do with our domestic politics and the desire to show that Britain has a, a post-Brexit place on the world stage and that is still an important power, even though it's not there at the table when you know, the EU is discussing its response to this. So Germany, of course, doesn't want there to be a conflict because yeah. it is much more economically tied to Russia than most of the other European countries. So that every country has a different interest in how they perceive what's going on. It does feel like Ukraine, from force of habit, from being a neighbour and seeing this all the time, they sort of take the chaos and all the conspiracy theories and misinformation and they just sort of slightly shrug their shoulders and carry on, whilst we're sort of slightly being buffeted by it in every which way. Far far be it from me to... I'm not suggesting any moral equivalence between um, London and Moscow, but I think it's important to say that although Moscow is an arch user of propaganda and information to achieve its purposes, that there is a larger information war going on. And I think it would be silly not to see ourselves as part of that too. Obviously, the kind of rhetoric that comes out of capitals is designed for a reason and it's incredibly naive to think that just because we have a democratic government that they wouldn't be engaged in their own information war. And if it does happen, if Putin invades even part of the country, you know, we have all threatened sanctions. Would those sanctions be effective? Because Russia has faced sanctions before. Well, Putin has not shown himself to be particularly influenced or moved by sanctions. They haven't been hugely successful in the past at influencing his behaviour. I think the most likely sanctions to happen would be against Russian banks that would cut them off from being able to participate in the global economy. Another way that you could go about this is by sanctioning the Kremlin in a circle itself. President Biden has talked about putting sanctions on Putin individually. But the problem with sanctioning Putin (laughs) is where Putin's money actually is. This is really difficult to trace. Putin doesn't hold any money overseas. The people who hold Putin's money in places like London are his cronies, are these oligarchs who asset stripped the Russian state and who kind of owe their fortunes to him. So when he asks favours of them or wants them to push money around in a certain way or use it, dare I say, to influence people in other countries, then he gets them to do it for him. And so by sanctioning Putin, you would not be able to access any of this money. You would have to go after these oligarchs themselves. Now, Mm. that is what people like Bill Browder would like to see. Putin values that money more than human life. He's killed a lot of people to get that money. And so in my mind, the cleanest safest 
and simplest way of deterring Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine is to go after his money. Bill Bradford is the American-born financier and now a British citizen who led the campaign for what we now call Magnitsky sanctions in the name of his Russian lawyer who was murdered by the Russian state. And these sanctions, which Britain adopted after leaving the European Union, these sanctions are much, much easier to slap on individuals. The burden of legal proof is not that high. As long as you know that these people are involved in corruption, you can do it. They are almost the most targeted weapon we could possibly employ to single out the people on whom Putin relies. It's so interesting, isn't it? It does feel like so much of this story actually goes back to 1994. That moment when the Cold War ended, we kind of welcomed in business relationships with Russia without really asking too many questions. And now there is so much Russian money in London, for example, that it's very hard for us to impose sanctions if they do misbehave without sort of injuring ourselves. Yes, it is really tricky, isn't it? Because conventional wisdom would say that, you know, the greater your economic relationship is, the greater, you know, more investments they have, the more leverage you ought to have over them. But that that becomes problematic when that money is so embedded and so entrenched in your country that it will be painful for you to disentangle it. I mean, really, I think that Britain had its eyes closed as to what was happening and where this money was coming from for so long that when it kind of woke up and um, smelt the vodka, the task just looked beyond anyone's capability or political will. So I'm going back next week, I think, and we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely... I think it's so 50-50 that I do not want to sit here and wake up and, and find it. it. <laughs> well, yeah, because it becomes a pain then. Uh, airspace will be closed. Probably yeah. the internet will go down. Probably mobile phones will go down. You want to be there when it happens. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Catherine Philp, diplomatic correspondent for The Times, and Anthony Lloyd, veteran war correspondent. You can read more of their work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producers today were Taryn Siegel, James Shield, and Ben Mitchell. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with us, with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, if it taught you anything, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.